Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Coronation of Napoleon. The human propensity towards self-aggrandizement at the cost of others can be seen all throughout history. But Napoleon's coronation provides an extremely vibrant example. But when contrasted with the bloody coronation of King Jesus, all Napoleonic attempts at self-glorification fall flat on their face. Please, we'd love for you to contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This message is entitled, The Coronation of Napoleon. And I am very excited about this message. And I'm excited about it almost like for personal reasons. I need what is in this message at a greater level. And what is in this message, what's packaged inside of it, is something that most of us as Christians understand. However, to grasp it and to live out of it is a whole other thing. We live in a generation in which the idea presented herein, this message, is completely backwards and opposite from what most of us have been tutored as to do in our system of thought. And even in Christianity, which is what is shocking. In fact, I'm going to start with an understanding of how Christians are trained in leadership, in the music industry, in the book industry to gain preeminence and position in a culture all under the banner of reaching the culture. Okay, because what is our end game as Christians? We want to influence people for Jesus Christ. And so if you're going to influence people for Jesus Christ, well, then you must gain position. You must be seen. You must put yourself up on a hill and people must see you. They must behold you. Then they will say, what that person has, I want to hear. It only is reasonable, don't you think? Let us be seen. We can increase that God may increase. By the way, what I'm giving you is blasphemy. What I just said is blasphemy. And yet that is what we've been tutored as as Christian leaders today. What I want to give you is the true pattern for influencing the nations. It's the pattern of Jesus Christ. And it's completely opposite the pattern of the five-foot-two-inch-tall varmint named Napoleon. Napoleon considered one of the greatest conquerors ever in the history of Earth. The guy was five-foot-two. Isn't that amazing? All of us guys are like, what in the world? And he, if he heard this message, would immediately kill me. He was a powerful guy. And he wouldn't like what I'm about to say. However, I'm going to say it anyways. Because there's a five-foot-two-inch-tall Napoleon that wants to come and ascend to the throne of your soul and claim the position that it rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ. And it's you, little five-foot-two varmint, running out around inside of you as well. And we cannot allow this little varmint to gain the preeminence in our life. There is one spot, one throne, in our life, and it belongs to the King of Kings. Okay, so let's do a study on this. First of all, I want to discuss six secrets of Christian celebrityism. The recipe for rising to the top of the heap. These things are not written down. No one would ever write a book on this. In fact, I think it would be a great irony if someone would write a book called this and actually treat it as if it's a normal thing and see if anyone would say anything about it. 
They'd probably go right through the Christian publishing system without any friction whatsoever. Most people just would never be so audacious as to say it straight out that this is what we're doing. By the way, before I go into this, this is not what I believe. Okay? So just to clarify, I can see someone trying to lift this out uh, audio-wise. I'm going to make it very clear. This is not what I believe. But these are the six secrets of Christian celebrityism. If you want to be a celebrity in Christianity today, here is your key. First, self-exaltation. Celebrityism, a bigger-than-life montage of one's hip, cool, smart, sexy, and talented attributes. You have to allow the world to see what's good about you. Put it on display. Let them see a little skin. Let them understand and behold how talented, how good you really are. The world says big image is what brings about big influence. This is the world's message, and unfortunately this has crept into Christianity. Big image leads to big influence. Hey, you have a message, dear brother. You better get a big image so that you can have a big influence with your great message. Two, self-effort. The world applauds the hard work of making it, of applying all that self-effort can bring and then tirelessly laboring until the opportune moment of fame and influence arrives. You did it. You did it. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you made it happen. Well done. And we give the applause. To who? To you. You did it. Self-effort accomplished it. Now you have a position of influence to make a difference for God. Three, self-marketing. Claim the seat of the important. Declare to the world that you are the next big thing. If there's a seat open and we're needing the next big thing, it's your job to just go up and sit down in it. Take that seat. You need to market yourself. They need to see you. Let them be impressed with you. And for that to happen, you must first be impressed with yourself. Get your face up on the billboards, in front of the cameras, in the papers, on the covers of the magazines. The world must know you in order to be influenced by you. For self-promotion, don't miss an opportunity to plug your product, which is you. Don't overlook an opportunity to grab the spotlight and make clear why your product, which is you, is better than the competition, why your message is significant for this hour, and why you are the one to rescue the church from its lethargy. Five, self-pampering. You are needed in this desperate hour. We need you. We need you. And you hear it. You've taken the important seat. I'm needed. Therefore, you must be well-fed and rested. We need you to be safe. Somehow you need to be healthy because without you, we're doomed. And you've fallen for this, by the way. Take care of yourself as your primary code of behavior. For if you aren't pampered and if you aren't massaged by the hands of praise and adulation daily, you may lose your edge and thusly your influence. Six, self-solution. If you find a dilly, then don't dilly-dally. I don't know if you ever heard that statement. But if you have a great opportunity, don't waste another moment from taking advantage of it. Don't dilly-dally. You have yourself an opportunity. Take it. Claim it. Rise up and seize it. Don't let any moss grow on your situation. Always press for forward movement. Always seek to keep the wheels moving on your career, your interests, the gaining of your pursuits, and the fostering of your personal benefit. And this one you have to have a little biblical knowledge to fully appreciate. 
But if you find a Hagar, take advantage of her. Hagar is the ultimate solution for self. There are two sons born of Abraham. One was Ishmael and one was Isaac. Hagar was taken advantage of and out came Ishmael. It's known as a wild donkey of a man. God is interested not in Ishmael. He's interested in Isaac. And that's the work of God, not the work of man. The only thing that will change this world for Jesus Christ is the work of God. Your work stinks. We don't need any more of your work. We need God's work in and through you. Genesis 17, after Abraham had taken advantage of Hagar, he did gain a son. It worked. You'll find it's shocking how how, when you take things into your own hands, you can get things done. You can impress a lot of people. Ishmael pops out, but God rejects Ishmael. That can't stand before me. And what does Abraham pray? The same thing most of us have prayed most of our life. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Oh, that my self-effort might please you, God. I've worked hard on this kingdom. Look at all the things that I've done. Oh, that it would stand before you. I'm going to give you the doctrine of modern American Christianity. By the way, this isn't biblical. I want to clarify that. But this is the modern doctrine. I And I should have made I about a size, you know, 70 fonts here. I must increase that Christ would increase. It only makes sense. If I become big and this world beholds me, my virtue, my talents, my beauty, then I will have a platform to say, I just want to thank Jesus Christ. And everyone will say, did you see that, Christian? However, what they're seeing is you. They're not seeing Jesus. John Eldridge, who is a uh, leading proponent of the I Must Increase gospel. This is just a few clips uh, just to sort of summarize. Living from your glory is the only loving thing to do. Let people feel the weight of who you are and let them deal with it. Take the throne. Be what he meant you to be. In light of this message, you're going to be horrified by such notions. However, in modern Christianity, this is, of course, one of our best-selling authors, And many of you, it's one of the leading influences in your life. And I just kicked out uh, the feet from under it. How dare you do that, Eric? Well, when there's something that needs to be knocked down, it just needs to be knocked down. That is blasphemy. And I, for one, will stand up and speak it. Jesus is the one that takes the throne. Get off of it, little five-foot-two varmint. Get down off that throne. Okay, now I'm setting you up for something here. And it's called the coronation of Napoleon, okay? Which is a historical event. It's real. It really happened. Unfortunately, it's still really happening today inside of many of us. The dangers of self-exalting Christian leadership. Hmm, The dangers of it. Let me give you one quick statement of what the real dangers of self-exalting Christian leadership is. It's wrong. It's false. It puts the wrong person on the throne. It is not you that is supposed to be in control of your life. It is Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist said. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase. But I 
must decrease. So self-exalting Christian leadership is just unbiblical. There is no support system for it. I would encourage any of you in here to seek the word of God on this point and try and come back to me with any statement that says, I must increase, that I must be seen. He must be seen. That's Christianity. Here's Jesus himself saying, I can of my own self do nothing. Jesus modeled for us how we are to live. Though he be God, he limited himself to behave as a man. And in his manhood, though he be God, he claims, I can of my own self do nothing. Who are we to say that in our own self, we can do something? The coronation of Napoleon, the pomp and circumstance of self-crowning arrogance. This uh, is a painting done by Jacques-Louis David. I, I, my French isn't very good. so. But it was uh, painted... Uh, Napoleon was, went through his coronation in 1804. And this was painted in 1805 to 1807. It was a two-year process to paint this. The detail of it, I wish we could blow it up and you could see it. I mean, literally, the people that were actually in attendance... Their faces are very real. This is actually what it looked like in every detail. It's extraordinary. But I I don't want to give too much away of this. But from what I can gather, I I haven't studied Napoleon in depth. But I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, He seems to have this Jacques-Louis David uh, painter that I can almost see it. Most of the paintings that show Napoleon, you know, on his horse, you know, riding up and his hand standing there. It's the same guy. Okay, and I can almost see this little five foot two varmint saying, I need the best painter. Make me look good for the history books. Guess what? He looks pretty impressive in the history books. Very rarely does he amplify his five foot two height in his pictures. You'd think the guy was seven foot tall. He's extraordinary. This guy's amazing. Look how attractive he is. Okay. This is Napoleon in 1804. He needs to decide because he is going to be the king of France. He's decided that. He's going to rule this people. They want him to rule. Look, he's a mighty conqueror. So yes, he will rule. But what does he say about it? They say, we want you to be king. He says, you know what? Let me think this through. To be a king is to inherit old ideas and genealogy. I don't want to descend from anyone. The title of emperor is greater. Disgusting. The pageantry of Napoleon. Sunday, December 2nd, 1804. This is actually one of the most significant events in history. Most of us don't study French history, so as a result, it doesn't really stand out to us. But I want you to begin to behold something here. I want you to behold how this five foot two varmint lives. There is a part of you that wants to be in this scene. You want it to be about you. You want to have the throng applauding you. Okay, and I'm going to take this scene and I'm going to draw a direct contrast with another coronation in history. And I'm not going to tell you which coronation that is. The pageantry of Napoleon. So the guy wakes up at 8 a.m. Napoleon woke at 8 a.m. And then to the sound of a cannonade. He left the Tuileries at 11 a.m. in a white velvet vest with gold embroidery and diamond buttons. 
crimson velvet tunic and short crimson coat with satin lining. He wore a wreath of laurel. The number of onlookers is estimated by Wary was between four and 5,000, many of whom had held their places all night through intermittent showers that cleared in the morning. Napoleon's carriage was drawn by eight bay horses, an unmanned balloon ablaze with 3,000 lights in an imperial crown pattern was launched from the front of Notre Dame during the celebration. Before entering the Notre Dame Cathedral, Napoleon was vested in a long white satin tunic embroidered in gold thread. During the coronation, he was formally clothed in a heavy coronation mantle made from, the crimson, vel- made from crimson velvet lined with ermine. The velvet was covered with embroidered golden bees drawn from the golden bees among the regalia that had been discovered in the Merovingian tomb of Childeric I, a symbol that overlapped and outgloried even Charlemagne. The mantle weighed at least 80 pounds and was supported by four dignitaries. The coronation proper began with the singing of the hymn. The reason I put this part in, because I I took out a lot of detail of the coronation, because, I mean, literally, history can go into every second of this coronation. That's how uh, significant it was to the French people. But there is an abomination that is taking place here. You you will have never seen such self-exaltation in your life, as I continue. But in the midst of it, it is done under a religious garb. It is done as if it is unto God. The coronation proper began with the singing of the hymn, Vene Creator Spiritus, followed by the versicle, Lord, send forth your spirit, in response, and renew the face of the earth, and the collect for the feast of Pentecost, God who has taught the hearts of your faithful by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. After this, the prayer, Almighty everlasting God, the creator of all. During the litany of the saints, the emperor remained seated, only kneeling for special petitions. The emperor was anointed on his head and on both hands with chrism. That's the anointing oil. It's called chrism. With the prayer, God, the Son of God. Because the traditional royal crown had been destroyed during the French Revolution, the so-called crown of Napoleon, made to look medieval and called the crown of Charlemagne for the occasion, was waiting on the altar. At the moment of the crowning, Napoleon unexpectedly turned and forestalling the Pope crowned himself. There is, this hangs in the Louvre in Paris, but there is one of the sketches of Napoleon crowning himself. The Pope was the one who was supposed to stand up, rise up, to signify that the king was beneath the headship of Christ. But Napoleon forestalls the Pope, in other words, moved quicker and caught the Pope off guard, grabs the crown and sticks it on his head. Boy, does that sound a lot like us. Now I want to do a contrast. The way a real king is made. Oh, yeah! Go, Jesus! A study in the coronation of Jesus Christ. I want you to behold the Lamb of God. Because this was his coronation. The greatest, most significant event that all the universe beholds even to this day. The crowning of the rightful king. But how did he approach 
that throne. How did he do it? Because the way he did it is the way he invites us to follow. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 is a picture of his coronation. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how he gained his position. That is Christ's coronation. Though God, he made himself of no reputation. Though God, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Though God, he was made in the likeness of men. Though God, he humbled himself. Though God, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Though God, no, and as a result, that's what it should say, dot, 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 God has highly exalted him and given him the preeminence. Following the leader. It says in 1 Peter 2, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. What are his steps? We just described his steps. Those are his steps. Well, it's not the steps I was looking for, though. I mean, maybe like his steps of joy and peace and that he was you know, loving and he was kind to everyone and he healed people and multiplied fishes and loaves. I like those steps. Those are noble sounding. Those are his steps. Downward they went. Those are the steps we follow. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Where was his example? It was in suffering. His example was in suffering. It was in lowliness that we should follow his steps. Pertuo, which means preeminence, the first position, to be the first, first place. Who's first place in this entire universe? Jesus Christ. So it's interesting, though Napoleon would claim to be first place, Jesus is actually first place. But the way in which Napoleon went about his farce, his masquerade of power, Jesus approached it completely different. And who got the real thing? Napoleon is dead and buried. But Jesus lives on. He is pretuo, preeminent, first. How did he gain his first position? God makes it very clear in Scripture how he gained it. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things, he might have the pratuo, the preeminence, the first position. He is first. 
How is the pertuo gained? It says in 1 Peter 5 and James 4, 6, the scripture comes up twice. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you are pompous and arrogant, guess what? You're not going anywhere in God's kingdom. He resists you. It's a promise. You want to be resisted by God? Just get an attitude. Think highly of yourself. You're not going anywhere. Definitely not upward in the kingdom of heaven. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. The last shall be first, and the first last. Okay? So look at the beginning of this. This is Jesus actually speaking. The last shall be first. You know what we can conclude with that? Jesus took the last place when he was here on earth. Because he's the first. And it says it right there. The last shall be first. That means treat me as the last. Treat me as the last. I willingly take it. And as a result, the last shall be first. And those that claim the first position, Napoleon, for instance, are last. Listen to this scripture. It's just beautiful in relationship to Philippians 2. Everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. That's exactly what happened with Jesus. He humbled himself. The pertuo is gained in the lowest place. This is a reflection on what we talked about last week as far as judging territory and how we judge. It says, judge not lest ye be judged. But it also makes it clear in Scripture that we are supposed to judge. But most of us are judging outside of our jurisdiction. We have no position to look into those matters or to make a decision in those matters. We're out of bounds. And so one of the things that it talked about, we we were repeating what it says in Scripture in regards to the lowest place. Most of us are not interested in taking this position. But listen to these Scriptures. Luke 14. So he, speaking of Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. There's your quote. Stick it up in your life. Whether it's on your mirror when you're getting ready in the morning. Whether it's on your refrigerator. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In Proverbs 25, it says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. And in Hebrews 5, And no man takes this honor unto himself, speaking of the high priest's position. But he that is called of God, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. Jesus is the high priest, but he did not take the position upon himself. He did not say, anoint me high priest. God set him as the high priest. God did the choosing. He took the lowest place. And he was God. What's he doing? He was setting a pattern and an example for us. That we too would take the low place. That our God could come to us and say, I have something for you. Come up here. But that's God's business, not ours. Our business is to take the lowest place. 
The five royal steps to the throne. Now, this is a study in the coronation of Jesus Christ, and it's extraordinary. The five royal steps to the throne. Gethsemane, the low place of soul anguish. These five steps are the lowest of the low places you could ever imagine. He took the last place. Gethsemane, the low place of soul anguish, aloneness, crushing burden, the breaking of heart, the breaking of a man. He set a pattern for us that we should follow. Uh, I'm not exactly sure that I'm interested in going there, though. Uh, I sort of prefer getting up at 8 a.m. and leaving uh, the Tuileries at 11 to the sound of cannonade. Could someone have a wreath on my head and maybe a satin robe with some diamond buttons? This stinks. Who came up with this idea? Uh, Brace yourself. The king of all kings. I know you're attracted to Napoleon's coronation after the flesh. We all would be. But this is the coronation after the spirit. You want the position that Jesus Christ has set for you? This is the way to follow. Two, the nine tails of torture. Referring to the cat of nine tails that ripped his flesh apart. It's the low place of physical suffering, pain, physical and mental torment, the tearing of the body, the spilling of the blood, the renting of the flesh. What kind of coronation is this for a king of kings? Can't you explain to them they're making a mistake? There's no mistake. This is purposeful. This is how God establishes his royalty. Three, the walk of the criminal, the low place of false accusation and abuse, with a cross upon his shoulders, already weakened, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, which already means he's about to die. Then his body is rent in pieces by a cat of nine tails with literal bone and metal pulling away his body from his, from his bones. Most men die in and through such scourging. Jesus still lives. And now, bloodied, with a crown of thorns mockingly placed upon his brow, he has a heavy cross to bear. The walk of the criminal. The low place of false accusation and abuse. He's numbered with the criminals. Associated with the filthy. Misunderstood by the onlooking crowds. Weighted down by the heavy cross of other men's sin. I don't deserve this. All I wanted to do was serve Jesus. Now their baggage and their junk is on me. They have an issue. Why does it need to become my issue? I love Jesus. I believe in him. Why does all the junk of this earth have to come against me? You're being prepared to bear a crown. Number four, the nails of spectacle. The low place of public ridicule. Pressed to the splintery wood of shame and mockery. Absorbing the basis accusations with silence. Held in contempt and publicly mocked by the most despicable of men. Number five. The spear that opens the belly. The low place of death. Even the shameful death of a criminal. The pouring out of all that is within. The giving up of everything for the sake of others. That is one strange coronation. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, wherefore, God also highly exalted him. 
It's as a direct result of this. Jesus bravely walked the red carpet of crucifixion, the royal path of heavenly coronation, strewn with happy petals of righteous suffering and the joyous trumpet sounds of soul anguish. His pain was the chrism, his wounds the ermine robe, the thorns of mockery his crown, the nails of earthly trial his cannonade and benediction, and the spear in his side the standing ovation of the heavenly host. You see, you're just not looking at this the right way. This is the greatest moment in all of history. Your king is being brought into the presence of his God. Your king is going to be exalted. And you are the onlooking, the onlooking gawking crowd saying, There, behold, our great king. See, you're just not looking at it right. All you see is blood and suffering. What you're not seeing is your king. Your king is being made a king. So I want to go through the five royal steps to the throne. This is the redo version. And so we're going to do the five royal steps to the throne, but this is like push replay, and we're going to change everything up. Because all you focus on oftentimes is the low place. But you don't realize that in the heavenly eyesight, that low place is the highest place. That's why I can call this a coronation of a king, not the sentencing of a criminal. What we see is the penalty of criminal behavior. But what God sees is he sees the accomplishment of everything that is needed to thwart the enemy, to establish a kingdom, to reign in peace. So let's do this again. And what was a low place, I want you to realize, is actually the highest place. But it's in the heavenly eyesight. The last shall be first. That low place, place that you see is actually the first place. This is the greatest place. So instead of Gethsemane, just focusing on the anguish, I want you to focus on something else. And as I go through this, by the way, I want you to realize I'm doing another twist to this too. I'm putting you in the situation. Because you are being called to follow. And so, yes, Jesus walked through this. But I want you to have a new lens for it. It was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. There is something that he's heading towards. And when you see that something, suddenly it transforms these five steps. And these five steps become the high place instead of the low place. Sure, in this world's eyes, they're low. Absolutely. But we don't think from this world's vantage point. This is highness. We must behold the truth, the reality. This is the Gethsemanic invitation. You have received the invitation from your God. He says, please, can you come join me? Who's inviting you? The king of kings is inviting you to Gethsemane. The high place of soul intimacy. It's identification. It's communion of spirit. It's the sharing of heart, mind, anguish, and joy. The beloved saying, come away with me to the cave of Adullam. Come away. See, David hid in the cave of Adullam when Saul was hunting him. Yes, and their pillows were rocks. It wasn't comfortable, but they were with David, who's known as the beloved. They were in the place of intimacy. I see no negatives here. Jesus is saying, come with me to Gethsemane. And he sends us a royal invite. The Gethsemanic invitation. This is as high as it gets. I got the invitation. Did you get it? I got it too. Let's go. Yeah. We can follow our king. Two, 
The nine tails of abundant grace. The high place of grace outpoured. You see, when you're in your toughest trials, you know what God gives you? An abundance of grace. And so you're like, well, how do I get the abundance of grace? Well, you suffer. God, can I please suffer? Because I would like to know the nine tails of your abundant grace. That's how you get it. And so when suffering comes, you rejoice. Because now you have abundant grace. Don't focus on the fact that your flesh is being rent from your body. That isn't the focus. That's what the world sees. What you see is what heaven sees. You see the depository of grace. You are receiving the outflow, the fountain. Partaking of his goodness, his brave, calm, and steadfast courage, his sweet and powerful presence. With every mark in the body comes forth a greater measure of God imparted. With every curse at the end of men's whips comes a blessing to the soul of the saint. Three, the red carpet walk of the favored. This isn't the walk of the criminal. This is the red carpet walk of the favored. You have been chosen, me, to carry a cross. Thank you, Jesus. It's backwards. Don't look at it through the lens of this earth. You must see it through the lens of heaven. This is the walk under the throne. This is how the saints grow in strength. It's the high place of privilege. Scented with heaven's perfume, marked with heaven's light, rejected for the evidence of heaven within, mocked for the demonstration of love, and held in contempt due to the realities of God's favor upon the soul. Given the ultimate gift, I know it doesn't seem like a very good gift, but this is the ultimate gift from the Father, who gives only good and perfect ones. Given the ultimate gift, supplied the ultimate honor, and donned with the ultimate favor, a cross to bear. Napoleon, on his coronation, bore the ornate scepter of Charles V and the sword of Philip III. But God's privileged bear a bloody cross with the smile and the song of the redeemed. Here. Here's the smile of the redeemed. We're like, really? I can have this. The smile of the redeemed? Napoleon, he had the, the scepter of Charles V. We have the song of Jesus. Could, 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 I, could I have that song for my coronation? Thank you. We get the smile and the song of our God. Who cares about the scepter of Charles V and the sword of Philip III? We have the King of Kings coming and literally walking the road with us. I'm walking with the King. (laughs) The King is walking with me. I have intimate delight in Him. And I have a song and a smile that comes from heaven. Oh, the red carpet walk. The nails of valor. The high place of silent assurance. Boy, when you get to this place, you are blessed. It's blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing that you could literally endure such moments that the world would just be horrified. That the world would be terrified. They can't even envision. And you have silent assurance. You don't even need to talk. You know exactly who your God is and what he has accomplished. The precious knowing that there is no need to speak for yourself because God himself has prepared the cannonade and he himself has scripted the benediction. The earthquake of of God's joyous exclamations are soon to come. Do you remember that with Jesus? Totally silent. This man was the son of God. 
Let God give the cannonade. You don't need to say a word. You have the silent assurance as you die that your God has prepared the benediction. The earthquake of God's joyous exclamations are soon to come. The saint must only, must be, only be patient, patiently wait for God to seal the event. And five, the opening up of the fountain of life. The high place of immeasurable joy. The gushing forth of God. The exceeding abundant joy. The life and love of God Almighty poured out. Sure, in the natural realm, and in the low understanding, you have a spear in your side. But what's the heavenly mindset? All that God has put in you is now made available for this earth. Why did he put it in you? Just so that you could have it inside of you? No, so that it can come out. What greater privilege do you have in this, these five steps than to be able to give God to this world? That's why your king came into you in the first place. is So that he could be given. The much anticipated and desperately desired moment for every saint. Becoming a channel through which the abundance of God is supplied to others. The six baffling secrets of Jesus' coronation. And we're going to tie these directly into our lives. And I'm going to contrast them with the six great uh, secrets for Christian celebrityism. And you'll see what a farce those are. Sitting right next to each other. The Napoleonic modus operandi of how we are to live, to gain esteem and ultimately position, calling it all Christian the whole time. And then you have Jesus' model. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-exaltation, but through purposeful smallness. This is baffling. Through purposeful smallness. He became a baby, by the way. You can't get a lot smaller than that. We must first accept the call to smallness, anonymity, nothingness in the church's eyes, idiocy in the world's eyes, and wastefulness in his family's and friends' eyes, in our family's and friends' eyes. That's where it starts. Are we willing to walk the narrow way of Jesus Christ? Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-effort, but through total consecration. We must accept the marks of blood upon our right ear, right thumb, and right big toe. That was the consecration of the saints in Exodus 29. I'm sorry, the priests in Exodus 29. Where they were set before the high priest and a ram was uh, cut open. And the high priest would dip blood uh, and uh, smear blood on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. This is a place of hearing. Whatever my God says, I listen. This is the place of control. Whatever my God asks for, he does. He's in control of my body. And then wherever I go in this life, my big toe is marked. I go there bearing the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. We must submit our minds unto Christ's mind. We must submit our mouth to only speak that which, is, which Christ is speaking. We must submit our body to do only that which Christ is doing. This is precisely what our, what our Jesus did in submitting unto the Father. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-marketing, but through the unqualified acceptance of the Father's terms. Contrary to self-marketing, our Jesus was uncomely, it says. He lacked beauty. This is a terrible plan, God. He did the exact opposite. But through the unqualified acceptance of the Father's terms, whatever you say, Father, goes. It's not His agenda. It's, not, it's His agenda, not ours. It's His timing, not ours. It's His decision how He spends our body and blood, not ours. It's His reputation that matters, not ours. It's His glory, not ours. Oh, and it's 
Now his life and his body, not ours. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-promotion, but through silence. Can you think of anything more opposite than promotion than silence? Not speaking our own thoughts, philosophies, and wisdom, but bound to speak nothing but that which he speaks. Not doing anything that he isn't doing. Silencing all personal talent and powers of human influence and allowing him to demonstrate and exert his great majesty. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-pampering, but through suffering. It's the point of the spear that draws out the stuff of God inside a man. It's the nails that keep him pinned to the purposes of God and call the demonstration of love forth. It's the agony that pulls up the grace of God for the thirsty to come and drink. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-solution, but through waiting. Not moving forward unless he moves forward. Always only in his time and not in ours. Knowing God is never in a hurry, but he is always at work. Refusing Hagar as God's solution and with joyful confidence. Yes, there's a Hagar out there for every single one of you. And self, you can accomplish something in and through self. And yes, this world may be impressed. The Christian world may be impressed. But I will prepare you right now that you would know that God is not impressed. This is the manner in which we impress our God. This and only this is the way unto the high places in the kingdom of heaven. There is only one way, and that's his way. Don't try and come up with a newfangled model. Gethsemane, the cat of nine tails, the walk of the criminal, the nails pinning you to the wood, the spear in your side. This is the way. Walk ye in it. The way is known as Jesus. I am the way, he says. This is him. This is the way of the king. And he says, follow me. Pick up your cross. Deny self. Come my way. The lost corridor of greatness. The path of shame and spitting. Listen to this scripture in Isaiah 50. At my rebuke, this is God speaking. At my rebuke, I dry up the sea. This is a powerful God, by the way. I make the rivers a wilderness. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. And yet, three short verses later, brace yourselves, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Who is this God? Listen to Spurgeon's commentary in one of his sermons on this exact statement in Isaiah. What a descent from the omnipotence which veils the heavens with clouds to the gracious condescension which does not veil its own face but permits it to be spat upon. The spittle-smeared cheek of the Almighty. A bewildering meditation of the highness become lowness. What I'm going to do is I'm going to interweave a meditation on the extraordinary highness of God. His power, his omnipotence, his sovereignty. And then intermix it with the statements of his loneliness. So that we can hopefully as a church of Jesus Christ feel this, understand this and comprehend this at some greater level. Because we're having trouble condescending ourselves. And we are five foot two Napoleons. We're nothing 
And God's asking us to come down a few notches. He came down from the highest heights as God and says, that's how it's done. So, Lord Jesus, help us to see you. My God has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, medied out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. To him the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are as counted as the small dust of the balance. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. When he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand. He sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all. The creator of the heavens and the earth. God of all the kingdoms of this earth. He can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion. He can set the dominion of his ordinances in the earth. He can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. And yet he was a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despise of the people. All they that saw him laughed him to scorn. They shot out the lip. They shook their head. But he is the mighty God. The everlasting God. Over all God blessed forever. The God of the whole earth. And his throne is forever and ever. And he is the almighty which is and which was and which is to come. He's the creator of all things. The upholder of all things. The father of eternity. The beginning and the ending. The alpha and the omega. The first and the last. They gaped upon him, it says. And he was poured out like water. And all his bones were out of joint. His heart was like wax. It melted in the midst of his bowels. His strength was dried up like a potsherd. And his tongue cleaved to his jaws. They pierced his hands and his feet. They parted his garments among them and cast lots upon his vesture. And yet he is the rock of ages. The head of every man. The head of all principality and power. Lord of lords. Lord both of the dead and the living. Lord of all. Lord over all. He is the prince of princes. The prince of the kings of the earth. He that fills all in all. The king of kings. He is the righteous judge. The king of saints. King of nations. King over all the earth. The king of glory. Crowned with many crowns. And he sitteth king forever. And he made sackcloth his garment. And he was a song of the drunkards. Reproach broke his heart. And he was full of heaviness. They smote the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. And yet before him all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting he was God. When the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against him, he shall laugh and shall hold them in derision. And yet, he gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And yet he is bound by nothing but his own nature and his own law. He is not limited in power nor governed in action by the will or the pleasure of any angel, demon, or man. But rather he is limited and governed only by the dictums and restraints of his loving prerogative to gain for himself a peculiar people. To establish his kingdom in this earth and to shed abroad his glory unto the heathen. And yet they laughed him to scorn. 
And they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. In the not-so-distant future, when he will return to bring terrible judgment to the nations, and his feet shall touch down on Mount Olivet and see it divide asunder, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And all will behold the Ancient of Days, whose eyes are as a flame of fire, whose voice is as a sound of many waters, and whose countenance is as the sun shining in all its strength. They will see the fiery stream issuing forth from before him, the thousand thousands ministering unto him, and the ten thousand times ten thousand that stand before him at the judgment. And all will behold the one at whose feet all crowns will be cast, for he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for he has created all things, and for his pleasure they are and were created. And yet they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees worshipped him. That they, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. So in concert with the noble King David, we pronounce, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. How does one become great in the kingdom of heaven? This was the question of the disciples. This is oftentimes the question of our little varmint inside as well. We want to be great. I want to be great. And yet, in all of that flesh and that selfishness, did you know that God does want you to be great? But, not for your sake, not for your reputation, for his Therefore, his means of making you great is the means of making you nothing in this earth. Therefore, no flesh will be able to boast and stand before him. The way that the saints of God are made great is we are made small in the world's eyes. Accept it. Don't fight it. Don't try and contradict it. That's his method. We are not hip and cool in this world. We are idiotes. We are the off-scouring. We are fools. And we relish in it. We don't make excuses for it. We stand by our king who was treated in the same way. And we identify with him in that cave of suffering. And we cherish every moment of intimacy with him. So how does one become great? They follow Jesus. So though we may be of highest birth, of the most royal pedigree, of the finest education, of the greatest talent, of the wealthiest class, and have been groomed for earthly greatness. By the way, that doesn't uh, link with many of us, I know. But I don't care where you come from. I don't care how high born you are. We are to follow Jesus and make ourselves of no reputation. And take upon ourselves the form form of a servant. And humble ourselves and become obedient unto death. Even the most horrible, cruel, humiliating, and shameful death of a cross. The coronation of the saints. The great spittle smearing celebration. You see, most of us don't look at this as a celebration. We're all down in the mouth, as the English would say it. Woe is us! 
We're in this season of persecution. Oh, no. Hey, hey, get a grip on your soul and start focusing with a heavenly mindset. This is a celebration. You're like, but I have spit all over my face. Praise God. Cherish it. Bottle it up, stick it on the, on the shelf and say, thank you, Jesus, for that spit. The great spittle smearing celebration. Having come to Smyrna, this is the martyrdom of Ignatius, which I read to all the students this last week, but this is, puts it all into perspective. Ignatius is the disciple of John, the apostle. This is Ignatius having a little uh, spittle-smearing celebration of his own. Having come to Smyrna, Ignatius wrote to the church at Rome, exhorting them not to use means for his deliverance from martyrdom, lest they should deprive him of that which he longed and hoped for. Now I begin to be a disciple, he said. I care for nothing of invisible or invisible things, of visible or invisible things, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire in the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beasts, such as the burning desire that he had to suffer, that he spoke what time he heard the lions roaring, saying, I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found purebred. Ignatius, it was noted that when he was told he was going to be fed to the wild beasts in the morning, rejoiced. And he says, my salvation has finally come. And he referred to the lions that were going to devour him as his friends. For they were going to be the ones to lead him into the presence of his beloved. 2 Timothy 2. Listen closely to this. It is a faithful saying, says Paul. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Remember, this is his coronation of the saints. Ruling and reigning with Jesus. So how does that work? Well, let me read it again. It is a faithful saying. Says Paul the apostle. This isn't my faithful saying. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. How is a saint brought to that high privileged position? Through suffering. That's the means. I didn't come up with it. So here's our little coronation. We must bravely walk the red carpet of Christ's sufferings, the royal path of heavenly coronation, strewn with happy petals of righteous suffering and the joyous trumpet sounds of sweet praises for the great victor. Our pain is the chrism. Our wounds are our ermine robe. The thorns of mockery are crown. The nails of earthly trial are cannonade and benediction. And the spear in our side, the standing ovation of the heavenly dignitaries. The low place is not just a seat at a table. You know what? There's a low place in possibly every moment of every day. And we are either attempting to exalt ourselves, or we're taking a low position to exalt Jesus. And in every moment, we need to be seeking that low place because that's what Jesus sought. He was last, and he's our first. He's our great preeminent one. He is the ruler of all rulers. And he says, follow me. But you're going that way, Jesus. Napoleon's going this way. Follow me. Down, down. Suffering, 
suffering. Here's the invitation to Gethsemane. An invitation from me, from the King of Kings? You must see this through the right lens. Otherwise, all you see is darkness. But this is the way to light. This, the Napoleonic coronation, is the way to darkness. It only looks like light. It's an angel of light. It's masquerading. as a, It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Don't buy it. Jesus' path is the only path. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Taking the low place in our souls and bodies. This body belongs to Jesus Christ. You take the low place. Who owns you? This hand does the service of Almighty Jesus. It does not do your bidding. Do not take the the, the crown and thrust it on the head of self. And do not claim this body as your own. It's purchased with the precious blood of your preeminent one. You give it over to him and you take the low place in that soul and body. One thing I could add in there, since soul is broken up into multiple factors, your mind. Your mind, your haughty little Napoleonic mind, it better set down that crown. And you submit to the word of God. What it says rules you. It's preeminent. And I don't care if it seems to contradict things in your notions and your philosophies. He's right. And you submit. And you take the low place. Taking the low place in our families. In every situation, we have the opportunity to wash feet. Some of you at Ellerslie, you've been trained, you've been groomed, and you have more understanding in the Christian life. One of the easiest things to do is go back home. And almost seek your family's approval to serve you and to give you position. Don't seek position. Seek the lowest place. Seek the lowest place and wash feet, even if you have to be silent for the next five years, to demonstrate the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Take the low place in our marriages. We're the servant in our marriage, not the one that needs to be served. How many men have misappropriated the ideas of Paul in their marriage and say, you serve me. Woman, submit. You want to see a man? Jesus, what did he do for his bride? Took a, wrapped a towel around his waist, bent his knee and washed the, her feet. You know that last supper was a proposal? In the Hebrew culture, you'd set a glass of wine in front of a woman if you were proposing to her. Before he proposed, he took the position of a servant and then said, please, May you be my bride. And because he was the low one, he died for her. That's a man. However, I'm not just going to encourage all the women to say, now you serve me because you're the man. Every woman in here in marriage takes the low place. Could you imagine in marriage you're fighting to take the low place? That's the way it should be. Taking the low place in our friendships, or for some of you elderly students, in your dorm room. You're the servant. Find an opportunity to make their bed. Find an opportunity to write a note and stick it on their pillow. I know for us guys it's a little awkward. (laughs) You could do something else. I don't know what it is. A cookie. Uh, That's still sort of awkward. Sorry. Uh, I don't have a good solution. But uh, (laughs) taking the low place in our work situations. I don't care if you're the president of the company. You serve. You take the lowest position. When you come in, you think of yourself as the lowest. Even though you're judging territory, the position that you've been entrusted is to lead, and you will lead well, but you will lead well by washing the lowest feet. 
take the low place in our churches. We are the ones that are ready to serve and ready to die. We don't look for someone else to do the job for us. We take the low position. And if there's a janitorial position, yours truly needs to be willing to take it. We do not seek the crown. We seek the lowest place. In our ministries, very few ministries on earth, and I tell you what, if you could take a little gem with you home for all of you you Ellerslie students, very few ministries know how to serve other ministries. I mean, that's the competition. Could you imagine churches beginning to serve other churches? We should consider this. In other words, we take the lowest position. We don't consider ourselves the preeminent church. We don't consider our ministry the preeminent ministry. But we wash the feet of all the other ministries. Hmm. Taking the low place in our obedience. We're willing to be the one that does the job no one else is willing to do. Back alleys of Bombay. There's no photo ops, no newspaper crews. They don't even know you're there. No one cares in this world. CNN, Fox News, they're not tracking you. I'll take that one, God. The one that no one will ever see. You take the low place in your obedience. You take the position of the one that looks the criminal, that is mocked, hanging naked on a cross. God, I'll take that one. I'm willing. Taking the low place in our futures. Not to esteem yourself the answer to all the earth's ills, but to say, God, I'll take the low position in my future. Don't aspire to Napoleon's position. Aspire to the lowest, that you would be the foot washer for all. And that's who God will use to change the world. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You want to be effective in the kingdom of heaven? You be willing to go into hiding, if necessary, to wash the feet of the saints and to reach the lowly and the downtrodden, the imprisoned, the unlovely on this earth. Spurning the coronation of Napoleon. There is a crown that sits very near us. And there is a weird and strange attraction within our souls to reach down and even under the guise of Christianity, thrust it upon our brow. That the world may behold the next savior of the world. We must spurn the coronation of Napoleon. Don't let the despicable little five foot two inch Napoleon inside you get his grubby hands on the crown. He's certainly not about to stick it where it rightfully belongs. Right now you have a decision. Now I know I've described the, the old man as that big burly fat guy, but it might be appropriate to also describe the old man as a five foot two inch little varmint. And you could even call him Napoleon, if necessary. He wants the preeminence. And that's precisely what your flesh is. It wants the preeminence. No. My Jesus gets what is rightfully his. You take that, th- that crown and you stick it on his head. Behold my king. And then you bow your knee in humble obeisance. And obedience, and you say, whatever you desire with this body, whatever you desire with this future, whatever you desire, you get. And that's Christianity. And that's the Christianity that we, as the body of Christ, should stand up and laud. We should stand up and cheer. Go, Jesus. This is his model.
He has done it. And he has gained the preeminence. Father, may that not just be information for our head, but I pray that you'd give us a spiritual sensitivity to see the low place today that we can take. The low place that even this ministry of Ellerslie and this church can take. Lord, may we not think highly of ourselves and stick a crown upon our head as a ministry even. Lord Jesus, keep us low. Please, keep us low and shut us up when necessary. Lord, show us how to serve in our homes, in our rooms, in our churches back home. Show us how to take that place. And may that despicable varmints of the old man, self-seeking, Lord Jesus, save us from it. We know you've done it. We know that we are crucified. That that old man is dealt with. So Lord Jesus, may we reckon it as so and walk in this beautiful realities of you being crowned in our lives. It's in the precious name of our great King Jesus we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.